Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok, and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Inside the Hive. This is your co-host, Joe Hagan. Today, I've got two very exciting conversations right dead center in the molten hot lava of the news cycle. First, Jeff Charlotte, our contributing editor from Vanity Fair, to talk about his latest reporting on the far-right movement. You know, next week, we're going to have the January 6th hearings back again to talk about these white nationalist groups and insurrectionists and their connection to the Trump White House and how those capital riots came together. Well, that was just the beginning. And Jeff Charlotte has crisscrossed this country getting a first-hand account of what these people are saying, doing, and thinking. And, you know, what is the specter of their idea of what's going to happen next? Is it civil war? More insurrections? You know, how are these people going to be uh, manipulated and guided by politicians who are exploiting them and, in fact, are them? They are part of the far-right movement. Jeff Charlotte, he's going to tell us what you can hear and see and expect Secondly, we have Willem Marx. He is a contributor to Vanity Fair based in London, and he is going to give us an account of what's happening there this week as Boris Johnson's role as prime minister has finally ended. What a long, frustrating, painful kind of dissolution that political career has been, and how did it happen, and where is it going Villain Marx is going to tell us, he's going to take us right into that, and he's going to talk about his latest reporting on the influence of Russian oligarchs in the British establishment, including Boris Johnson. I mean, did you know that a lot of the Russian oligarch money has been finding its way into the conservative movement uh, in the UK? And what does that mean? And who is it touching? And who will it touch? Well, that's uh, Villain Marx's beat. He's on the scene. He's on the subject. And we're going to talk to him today. So let's get right into it. I'd like to introduce our guest today, Jeff Charlotte, contributing editor to Vanity Fair, a colleague, an ally at the magazine. Uh, Jeff, welcome to the program. Hi, Joe. Good to be with you. Well, I read your story in Vanity Fair magazine this week. January 6th was only the beginning, is the title, and the warning. And you have another story coming out uh, on The Hive. The going title is The Great Acceleration. So just between those two titles, January 6th was only the beginning, The Great Acceleration, which is an excerpt from a book, 
you have forthcoming called The Undertow, Scenes from a Slow Civil War. I'm not feeling great about the things that you're telling me, but uh, I am impressed with your courage and your tenacity because you have sort of dropped yourself into the world of the fundamentalist, white nationalist, Trumpist sort of, can we even call it a fringe at this point? The fringe has become the center. And I think uh, that's sort of why why it matters to me to keep looking at this stuff. And I think there's people who say, you know, the thing that every journalist hears, why don't you tell stories about people who are doing good things? Um, but there's also people who say, you know, I know everything I need to know about these guys. I don't need to know anything about them. And I don't think that's true. I think um, what's happening right now in this kind of global fascist moment is a great broad convergence of many tributaries, many strands. It's not a monolith. That's part of what makes it so dangerous is that it's there are so many pieces of it. And to resist it, we have to map it. Uh, and that's what keeps sort of drawing me out into these long road trips across the country. Right. In your latest uh, one in the magazine, you go to Sacramento, California and places around California to hang out with some people, including supporters or people who are trying to keep the memory alive of Ashley Babbitt. Your whole story opens with her sort of story of radicalization up to the moment that she is killed during the Capitol riots and kind of the subsequent martyrdom, really, of Ashley Babbitt, which I knew sort of uh, on the surface that this may have been going on, but didn't realize the depth of it. You know, I mean, she really is a key figure suddenly. Yeah, Ashley Babbitt, this 34-year-old white woman from Southern California, had not been a particularly political person most of her life, voted for Obama twice, was in the Air Force, and then had a pool cleaning business, and became radicalized. Um, something about Trump clicked for her. 2016, she wrote her first tweet and was hashtag love Donald Trump. And she kept going deeper from there and was all the way to the Capitol where she was shot. The... Capitol Hill police officer who shot her, uh, Lieutenant Michael Byrd, was a black man. And even before his name was known, uh, you could see the, the photo of him. And as soon as I saw that, that day, I said, oh, I know, I think I know what they're going to do with this. Mm -hmm. um, because this is a very old American story. It's the lynching story. The idea of innocent white womanhood and the dangerous black man. And that's exactly, exactly what they started doing. So it wasn't so much that they had to create a martyr story. They just had to plug her into a very old racist martyr story and take it from there. Yeah. You know, just to go to your point a minute ago about what is the value of going to witness disparate strands of this, I sometimes think of it almost like a right-wing counterculture, right? That's sort of emerging and uh, becoming a force in our world. I just want to remind people that next week, uh, there's a new January 6th hearing that's going to focus on the participation of these white nationalist groups in the January 6th mob and their connections to some of the politicians. And I just want to recount a quote that I just read in the New York Times the other day from a Democratic strategist, Simon Rosenberg. He said, we need to remind the anti-MAGA majority who voted in record numbers in the last two elections, which I assume is probably the listeners of every every listener of this podcast, that if anything— the radicalization has gotten worse. You know, I remember watching January 6th, and my initial feeling was, well, this is going to be a slap in the face 
and, you know, a sane making moment for this country to finally see the fallout from this madness. But no, it was just the beginning and the groundwork for further madness, for further radicalization. And this Ashley Babbage story really kind of hits that. That's what I was most interested in was, was I mean, I, I, I tuned into the January 6th hearings like everybody else, but I was more interested in the aftermath. Um, or not the aftermath, what I hope will not be the prelude to something worse, but but may well be. And so I, I, I said, I'm going to sort of follow this kind of this ghost of Ashley Babbitt across the country. The, the piece in Vanity Fair is an excerpt of a, a trip that went across the whole country, sort of talking to people. And, and you know, it was sort of fascinating. You'd encounter all sorts of people who said um, that they had met Ashley Babbitt, or they had, she'd appeared in a dream. You know, mm-hmm. you see this very much this sort of fascist folklore in action and in creation and drawing people into ever more radical postures. The travel I'm doing now for the magazine around the state of Wisconsin, which post Roe became this blue state with no exceptions, anti-abortion law, this 1849 law went back on the book. You don't have to go looking far to find people who, who who see the Civil War as already having started or coming, who are well-armed, I should say, um, left and right, um, mostly the right, but uh, not exclusively. I think there's very little sense now of how do we get over this? It's more, this is something we have to go through. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Really excited to see whether I can read the Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. (laughs) He can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. (laughs) (laughs) We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. (laughs) This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How is your social battery right now? Is it bursting with energy or drained? How do you recharge it? Have you ever reflected on those questions? Therapy can give you the self-awareness to build a social life that doesn't drain your battery. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Find your social sweet spot with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com Hive today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot Hive. We talked a minute ago, is this the fringe? How unfringe is it going to become? Is it? And that's a question I have, you know, how mainstreamed this is. You know, how large of an actual constituency do you think these people are? You know, we see the polls of, okay, so 38% of the people support Trump. Is it all of them, you know, or how 
you know, from your travels. Tell me about your experience. I mean, look, as you say, the good news is they're not the majority. The bad news is that very few fascisms in history have ever come to power with the majority. There's one of the far right groups we'll probably be hearing about at the next January 6th hearing, the three percenters. Uh, They take their name from this idea that only three percent of of the population participated in the American Revolution. It's actually not correct. It's more like 25%. But they see that as, as very hopeful. Only 3% can, can overthrow uh, a government. Probably not 3% can't do that, but it can do a lot of damage. And uh, there's a political scientist named Robert Pape who sort of notes that the percentage of Americans who now say that political violence may be necessary, which is you know somewhere in the area of 40% far exceeds that of, say, Northern Ireland at the beginning of the Troubles, um, those who embrace political violence. So we have all the elements there. It doesn't make any of it inevitable, but I think one thing we have to do to try and stop it from coming is we have to get rid of the concept of the fringe. You know, I mean, is Ginny Thomas the fringe? Um, Is the Supreme Court the fringe? They have built over decades mainstream power. And in as much as we keep telling ourselves the center will always hold, we hasten its demise. Right. Well, I don't think anybody living in this moment, this summer in 2022, feels like the center is holding. I mean, when you have Liz Cheney, irony of ironies, being like really the spine of the Democratic Party, <laughs> okay? And you have Judge Michael, Michael Ludwig, this like, you know, very conservative judge, warning us, Donald Trump and his allies and supporters, and I, you know, italicize his allies and supporters who you are, have been spending time with, are a clear and present danger to American democracy. This is a real live thing that's happening. And I will say that I feel it too, this sense of numbness and denial and wanting to cope with it. I mean, it really is hard to believe, you know, it's shocking and it's, but the shockingness is, I think, part of its power to paralyze and inoculate the rest of us from being able to react to it. I'm just speaking from my own point of view, just from observation, but let's talk for a minute about what is it these people want? What do they really, you know, some of the beliefs you document in your thing, okay? There's one person who believes Hillary Clinton has already been executed, right? And that there's using green screens to pretend that she's still alive. We know about QAnon and some of the madness there, but you know, what would you say or identify as the sort of core thing that's driving this? The belief, the need, the underlying vision? I think, and this requires a lot of qualifications, mourning, a sense of loss, and the sense of loss that is real. Now, I don't want to do that thing where, you know, economic anxiety, right? Yeah, yeah. I think so much of this has been accelerated when I talk to people by the pandemic. And people who don't even believe it existed still lost so much to it and still channeled their grief. The church that I uh, profile in the story, Church of Glad Tidings in Yuba City, which is sort of a, a large regional church that gained a national reputation because it never closed its doors uh, and uh, had a what's called a constitutional sheriff, a sheriff basically who does not respect the law and refused to enforce California law and close it. And so then it became this stopping point for all the national right-wing figures. And when I talked to the pastor, Pastor Dave Bryan, he said, we lost not a single person to COVID. 
This is a big church. Nobody ever wore masks. Nobody's ever uh, vaxxed. Of course they did. They're in denial. Right. Um, and instead, what do they do? They have a militia, a weekly militia training. They present General Michael Flynn with an AR-15 on the stage, and he says, maybe I'll go find somebody in Washington. Uh, they have no crosses in the church, but a pulpit that's made of swords. They prepare for war, I think, to avoid that sense of loss. And what they want, I think, is a question that makes more sense to us. There is no, fascism doesn't have a policy agenda. It has many hates. Right now, its hatred is directed at trans children. Um, before that, it was directed at undocumented folks. There was the Muslim ban. It's always mutating. The point is to have an enemy, um, an enemy that frees you from having to think about yourself and your own losses and your own mistakes. Yeah, yeah. And one of the ironies that you document in this piece in the magazine, which is a fantastic piece and people should go read it. It's a really wonderful piece of writing is the fact that there are black and Latin people involved. And, and, and it's sort of like, hmm, you know, twist your mind around for a minute. But you talk about this concept of the mythical promise of whiteness, yeah. right? Which is a phrase from somebody else, but you extrapolate on it. And, and on, the, on another hand, it gives political cover to some of these people against these charges of racism. But tell me about how to understand that. Yeah, the promise of whiteness is a, is, is a phrase I borrowed from a scholar named Anthea Butler, a historian of religion, and uh, who's got a great recent book called White Evangelical Racism, sort of like a very slim kind of introduction to understanding how intertwined Christian nationalism and white supremacy are. And the promises of whiteness is what enables, I think, American fascism to grow beyond you know, the old European model of a singular racial purity, right? Um, uh, that's not going to work in a country as big as the United States. It's not actually, the, the Klan is there, but it's not actually Klansmen driving it. Um, and, you know, for instance, at this rally for Ashley Babbitt, uh, as many of the speakers were people of color as not. Um, I, uh, one of them was a man named George Riley, who describes himself as a, a Native American, an Iroquois Jew. He was a January 6th insurrectionist uh, who, whose great grievance is that the, the man who put his, his feet up on Nancy Pelosi's desk gets all the attention when, when Riley says he, he, he pulled down his pants and, and rubbed his butt on, on the desk. This is, he wants credit for this. Um, but he also wants credit for his place in this movement as, a, uh, as an indigenous person. And I think that's part of what to me, is so frightening. I think that's what held fascism back in the United States for a long time, this puzzle of how to retain white supremacy and yet draw a larger population in. And I think we're watching that problem be horrifically solved as we see a small number of people of color getting involved. Do they, is it not compute for them that the white supremacy is part of it? What would they say when, or what do people say when you confront them with that? Well, I mean, I think that's what the promise of whiteness is. In the story at Sacramento, there's a live streamer, uh, a guy called Julius, uh, who is a fascist live streamer, is a black man. Um, and he does this sort of imitation of his idea of the left. He says, slavery, slavery, slavery. That's all they ever talk about. And he 
he wants to be freed from that, right? He wants to not think about that. Um, he wants to imagine that white supremacy is not a problem for him. And the way he does that is embracing this kind of myth of colorblindness. Colorblindness is white supremacy. It's not some kind of liberal solution to it. Um, but it is also available. There's another church that I ended up visiting in Omaha, Nebraska, also sort of a significant church on the right, also with their own militia. And I don't know, probably about 30 or 40% people of color. And uh, all of whom see critical race theory as a threat. All of them who see talking about race as a threat. And you can understand why some people of color might hear this promise of whiteness, of colorblindness, and think, wow, this is my way beyond all this strife. Um, it's a myth, it's a lie, but it's seductive. Yeah. I have to give it up to you for spending the amount of time that you did with these people. And, you know, there's an art, as I know as a journalist also, to hanging out with people who have possibly crackpot ideas and you just let them talk and you explore and you find out what they're thinking and you try not to be judgmental, right? Um, I've done a little of that myself. But um, And by the way, I want to just say that uh, you wrote a great story last summer about you know, inside the Trump cult, and you were with the fantastic photographer Bruce Gilden, who's taken amazing pictures of sort of the Trump world. And he accompanied me on a story to Florida last summer, and we did some similar things. And it was, it's, uh, he's an extraordinary kind of photographer and capturer of really the gestalt of this thing we're talking about, right? But, you know, I pay attention to like these comedians, like the Good Liars and Jordan Klepper, who go these, then they drop themselves into these worlds. And, you know, they make comedy out of it, but the basic idea is these, it's, it's just unbelievable the amount of conspiracies and misinformation and kind of incoherent beliefs, you know, when they are presented with facts or contrary information, you just see these looks of confusion on their face. It's like, you know, showing the proverbial dog a card trick sort of situation. And at the same time, I'm often looking at them with some level of sympathy. And I wonder if you experience that sometimes. I mean, some of these people seem like drunks that you meet on the street at two in the morning, the way they talk. I mean, the, just the madness of it all. There's got to be some level of desperation with these people, like to, to have gotten to this point. And I wonder if you ever feel sympathy for them. Uh, you know, I, I think I sort of prefer the phrase uh, empathy for the devil. I think empathy is a sort of complicated concept right now for us as journalists in this moment of fascism. Mm -hmm. um, and I believe in it. And I think it's important, though, to distinguish empathy from sympathy. Um, I have no solidarity with these folks, um, but I have empathy. A man I just spent some time with in Wisconsin, he's two years into a five-year lung cancer prognosis. I got to talking to him about his sec crossed guns, Second Amendment flag, filled with conspiracy theories, thinking about his nine children uh, between he and his, his partner, his, his seven grandchildren, thinking about what's going to happen to them. He is ill-equipped to understand the forces sort of buffeting his world, as are we all, but he has found solace in his sickness and these kinds of conspiracy theories and that have driven him to the right and driven him to uh, a deeper and more explicit racism than he would have acknowledged at earlier points in his life. I have no sympathy for that. But you talk to a dying man who is terrified of what's going to happen to his kids 
and uh, uh, you understand that grasping, right? But there's so many folks too, and I think it's it's tempting for us to see these these people as as a kind of a dying breed that is desperate. But you mentioned the man who believes that Hillary Clinton's already been executed. That guy's actually a fairly prominent speaker in something called the Sovereign Citizen Circuit. And I remember at that church after he told that, the, the church of you know many hundreds of people all cheered. They thought this was great news. I went out in the lobby I thought, and, I, and I saw a bunch of young people. I said, I've got to talk. I, I, they must know that's, that's crazy. Talk to a young woman, college student. She goes, yeah, I don't know. That's a really interesting idea, you know? Um, she wasn't sure, but she wanted to be, in her view, open-minded. Open-minded to the possibility that Hillary had been executed. Open-minded to the, uh, what they reported as the building of secret Guantanamos for, for you and I, Joe, for journalists, are going to be rounded up. Um, uh, they found that hopeful. Um, yeah, not, that, that will uh, attenuate your empathy really fast. Yes. <laughs> um, so, you know, a lot of us have been exposed to, you know, the beliefs of QAnon. We, and you've really explored sort of the, the connection between kind of Christian theology and the political manifest destiny that these people are kind of experiencing. I, I want to just quote some stuff you write. Uh, you know, you're talking, critiquing something somebody said. You said, as history, it's bunk, as politics, fascist kitsch, but as desire— Longing, the wish to live in the moment, to enter the myth as the hero of your own story. And you go on to say that, you know, you can't fact check a myth. Yeah. And I felt like that was really an interesting point. In a previous article you wrote uh, inside the cult Trump, you just talk about Gnosticism, right? This idea that knowledge is not in information, not in facts or data, but in, some, in your gut, right? That you can't be measured. You just know because you have some kind of religious narcissism that tells you, you know, that you already know. And that allows for anything, right? Just a total world of madness. I should clarify, that's American Gnosticism because uh, Elaine Pagel is a great scholar, uh, uh, an author of the Gnostic Gospels, uh, the, the book about it, best-selling book about it. Um, you know, she was uh, a little peeved with me and saying, well, that's not what these ancient religious thinkers said exactly. But it is, in fact, what... The QAnon believers who, be, you know, who believe in numerology, you know, reading letters as codes for numbers that are codes for something, you know, it is what they believe. And right, you can't fact check a myth. That comes from a story where the pastor of this church, and I say, you know, is it just coincidence that I came out to Sacramento to go to this Ashley Babbitt rally, and now I'm at this church in this other city. I was brought from the rally there where I heard the sort of the whole theology of of January 6th and that, and he says, you know, there is no word for coincidence in the Bible. Well, I'm not a Bible scholar, so I, I reached out to a friend who is uh, uh, an expert in, in, in biblical languages, and he says, yes, there absolutely is a word for coincidence in the Bible. So the, the pastor was wrong, and it was satisfying. It felt good, like, ah. Yeah. But as I say, that's not going to change his mind. No, well, It's man. not going to make him put down his guns. How alarmed are you nowadays? You know, you, you've been up close to it, and maybe that will, as like, a, you know, made you more palpably aware of this concept of civil war. Uh, I was just reading um, Barbara Walter. She just wrote a book called How Civil War Started. I'm sure you're familiar really with Really valuable book. book, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And she talks a lot about, you know, the signs of civil war are all around us. You know, based on previous civil wars studied around the world, you know, we're seeing all the hallmarks. 
And one of them that we're seeing here in the U.S., uh, or one of the signs, is that we had 20 years of returning soldiers from all these wars we had in the Middle East, and now you've got this armed population that the right is recruiting from, and you're seeing a lot of that. How much of the of that, you know, we just saw an ad for a politician, Eric Greiden, you know, who was shooting a gun and saying, hey, let's go after rhinos, right, Republicans and name only. It's like it's right out in the open. It's happening right in front of our face. Uh, how frightening is it to you as a, somebody on the front lines of this thing? Scary that it's ever been. The the, the son of a, a, a young son of a friend, when I uh, was visiting and I stopped on the way to meet a militia commander, and he says, "Why do you? Why would you talk to a Nazi?" <laughs> you know, it's kind of a good, sensible question. But uh, I think I'm driven by a certain counterphobia that it's ten years ago I wouldn't. You know, the idea of civil war in the United States was absurd. I, I still think it's not inevitable, or maybe even likely, but it's definitely on the table. And there's definitely people preparing for it. And um, it makes me feel weirdly almost a little more comfortable to go and see it until you get too close. There's a, a the church I mentioned in Omaha, when they saw that I was speaking to some of the members of the church, uh, uh, a man in full tactical gear armed came out with a church usher. And uh, the church usher, you know, says, you, you're not allowed to talk to our members. And I'm, and that's you don't actually control them and we're not on your property and it didn't matter to him and i said you brought a man with a gun i've got a notebook and you brought a man with a gun and uh, he just leans in and he says i didn't bring a man with a gun how do you know i don't have a gun um and this was a church and you know he made clear all there's no there was no good media bad media there was no honest reporters i was the enemy and uh get out or or or, or i was in trouble and that was terrifying and I, you know, I have to say I had never had been threatened with guns at a church before in my years reporting, and that's yeah. something that is not uncommon now. Well, if you're going, I'm on, sorry, it is uncommon. It is uncommon, but it, it happens. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're going to churches where the cross is made out of swords. I guess the, you you answered my last question, which was like, you know, your way of coping with it is actually to get close to it and kind of try to understand it and assuage your anxiety, I suppose, about like what it is that's bubbling up out there. And I think politically, which is the only way that most normal people feel like they can, you know, have an actionable role in stopping it, there are other things that make you scared there too, because there are people actually holding office who seem to be allies of these people. And, you know, the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the people that are coming out in the January 6 hearings or we're going to hear about who actually had connections with them through Roger Stone or other people helping organize them and directing their anger, directing their rage. I mean, the January 6th, why it's terrifying, I think, is because it's taking what might be localized or disorganized and really wielding it. And that's what Trump did. And to me, that's the where it gets scary about civil war. It, is it these, these people may not have power in and of their small groups. They might seem on the fringe, but when they are made actionable, when they are stage-directed, when they are riled up and sent in a certain direction, it can lead to death and mayhem and horror, right? Yeah, I, w I mean, the only the only quibble with what you say is I would say these are they're not people in power who are allies of these people. They are these people. Yeah. Um, Marjorie Taylor Greene is these people. I'm sitting here in New Hampshire, and uh, the the leader of our our state legislature did a tweet on July 4th saying, you know, don't buy inflation 
overpriced uh, barbecue stuff, get more ammo for uh, your assault rifle. You know, traveling around Wisconsin, the GOP frontrunner for governor, a woman named uh, Rebecca Clayfish, who is a, she's a no exceptions person on abortion, says uh, she signed off on the idea that if a person is raped, um, well, they should use those lemons to make lemonade, that having the child, um, these are these people, right? It's, it's, it's gone beyond the, the simple opportunistic, opportunistic figures. I mean, look at Tucker Carlson, I think. Obviously, he's opportunistic. But at a certain point, he crosses over. He's not playing to that base. He is part of it. Right. And, you know, who can tell the difference anymore? Is yeah, the thing. It I mean, doesn't I, matter. It, it doesn't matter. And I, I, I think about some of these crazy beliefs and the people that you're meeting and I, one of my questions has always been, like, how much irony is involved in that? Do they have any sense of irony? That I mean, they, do they laugh sometimes when they say these asinine things? Are they— God, yes, yeah. I mean, that's—look, like the, the let's go Brandon, right? And, right. you know, just driving around the country this summer, it's amazing to me how pervasive that is, right? You know, let's go Brandon billboards and T-shirts, and you go into the gas station, and you can get a let's go Brandon beer cozy and all this kind of stuff. It is—it's it, a dumb joke, but it's a joke. You know, they've made a rallying cry out of a joke. And I think, you know, there's a lot that's been written about that, about the use of fascism's use of humor, right? That, and that's the Trump method, right? Joking, not joking. I say this extreme yep. thing, I didn't mean I was just joking. Or was I? Yeah. Back and forth, back and forth, and you move and, and they advance. Exactly. It's, it's not the earnest old fascism of, of the 1930s. Right. Yeah, that's what's... Um scary about it. And I think equally scary is the fact that let's go Brandon supposedly means like fuck Joe Biden and that their target is Joe Biden. I, I, that's what always is baffling to me. It was like kind of the most innocuous, least radical figure in America, right? A guy who's really, he's being critiqued by his own party for not being radical enough. <laughs> you know, they want him to do things that are more combative and he's not combative. And yet, he can stir all this incredible anger and passion. They can turn anything into a rallying cry. Now, it doesn't matter whether he's earned it, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think of one house I was just visiting, and they had a big uh, come-and-take-it flag, uh, an AR-15. Uh, and then underneath that, this woodworking project, this beautifully done uh, sort of wooden circle painted just so FJB, which stands for Fuck Joe Biden. And I was looking... <laughs> time they had spent to make this lawn ornament of fuck Joe Biden. And then you get this weird contradiction because they think Joe Biden's just a puppet. They're all certain he wields no real power. Uh, he's just a stand-in for, depends on who you're talking to. And at the same time, they hate him passionately. And that kind of contradiction actually is this sort of fertile ground of conspiracy, which they find themselves most comfortable well, Jeff, we have to wind down here, um, but I really appreciate you coming on, talking about these important stories you've written. You're, you know, you're doing really noble, courageous work, getting down there in the weeds and trying to explain this to us and bring it to our attention and on some level sound an alarm. I think people listening to this, of course, are going to be paying attention to the January 6th hearings. You know, I've said it on this podcast before, and other people have said it too. Daniel Goldman, a, a former federal prosecutor, was on here. I do think, and I'll get this will be my final question for you, that Donald Trump himself has to be brought to justice 
in order for to even begin to quell some of this. And I know that's going to be a difficult thing. It's going to cause a lot of, uh, you know, indigestion around in the politics of it and nationally and culturally. But I feel like that's the road to dampening some of this. And I don't know how you feel about it, but that's, and I'm sure Liz Cheney and these people do feel that way. But, you know, and there are others who have argued, by the way, that Trump's beside the point now and the whole culture has gotten out of, you know, beyond him. I don't think that's exactly true. Yeah, I mean, I think Trumpism is bigger than Trump, but I agree with you. He's got to be brought to justice. I, I've, as the hearings have advanced, I've had a growing amount of hope that maybe that's possible. And 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 maybe here's my hopeful note to end on. It's a weird hopeful note, but to think, you know, I think some of the concern, the anxiety, is if you try to prosecute a former president in a country that's such a tinderbox already, might that make things worse? Might that spark the civil war? The good news is this, time and time again, I would meet people who are well-armed and they would say, if there's just one more, Biden takes one more step, we're going to be out in the streets. And I'm like, well, you already think Biden is empowered by coup. Many of you think that he eats children. So if that has not put you out in the streets, maybe you're not actually going to go out in the streets. Maybe it is safe to arrest Donald Trump and to reassert not the political center, but the center of an idea of a government that we, that we struggle over, but don't shoot each other over. Yeah. Well, that is, uh, you know, uh, I'll take that spark of hope where I can get it. So thank you, Jeff. <laughs> and uh, we'll look forward to having you back. This, I think this is your first time on the podcast, right? It is. Yeah, well, we'll have you back uh, again, and hopefully uh, we'll have some new and better news uh, under our belts to uh, think about all of this. But thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Jim. There are a lot of issues on voters' minds right now. Six big ones could help decide the election. Guns, reproductive rights, immigration, the economy, health care, and the wars overseas. On the Consider This podcast from NPR, we will unpack the debates on these issues and what's at stake. You can listen to NPR's Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. Bill and Marks, uh, welcome to Inside the Hive. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Jay. You're coming to us from London. Uh, you are one of our contributing correspondents uh, to Vanity Fair uh, and the author of Baluchistan at the Crossroads, at a Crossroads, sorry. You know, today is like a historic day, and I'm glad to talk to somebody who's on the ground, eyewitness to it, and probably knows a lot more about it than I do. You know, I opened up my New York Times browser and boom, there's the giant headline that Boris Johnson is out. So just, you know, right off the top, I just have to ask you, what is that? What's the feeling in the atmosphere, in the air today? It's obviously something that is the entire country is talking about. Yeah, I think a lot of people are feeling relieved in some ways because it's just been an almost endless series of headlines criticisms against Boris Johnson over the last few days. And for many people, certainly that I've talked to, it's felt like an impossible situation and it had to come to a head. And it finally has at lunchtime here in London today. And if you think back over the last seven or eight months since the first of the major criticisms of Boris Johnson's character and Prime Minister as Prime Minister began, 
uh, around the first revelations of parties being held in Downing Street during COVID-19 restrictions. It's been a long, arduous journey for his critics and those that have called that he should not be the person staying in number 10 Downing Street. Finally, they seem to have got their wishes granted. Uh, but for many in the population, it's been a pretty exhausting process. Yeah. And, and you've written a little bit about this on our pages. Uh, I read a story called Decoding Boris Johnson's Exceedingly British Partygate Scandal. And it is sort of funny for us because we've, we know about high-level politicians who broke away from COVID restrictions to have wingdings at their uh, estates, and it just kind of comes and goes. But there, as you describe in this article that people should go back and check out in Vanity Fair, there is uh, it's a cultural thing. That the fact that he was having these parties and you know not abiding by the rules because there is such a uh, cultural devotion to rules, <laughs> basically is what. Can you talk about that for just a minute? Because a lot of people are going to want to understand this is he's been you know flapping in the wind, and you guys have been waiting for this moment for a long time. But it's all been the thing that set it in motion was this. Yeah, in the UK during lockdown periods throughout the pandemic. British people, in a way very differently to what you guys experience in the US, were very devoted to rules set by public health officials and by politicians. So, you know, I'd go to my local bakery and you'd have a line round the block with people very carefully measuring their distance between each other. When you were told that you couldn't socialize, you tended not to socialize. I knew very few people who broke rules around that. When you were told that you could have six people sat at a table in a pub, no more than that, people stuck to the rule of having six people sat at a table in a pub. I mean, it got really, really complex. The rules became insanely arcane. And that was one of the major reasons that when it turned out that people at the heart of the British establishment, the heart of the British government, those around Boris Johnson, essentially ignored those rules, flouted them repeatedly, the outrage was incredibly immediate and incredibly powerful. And it made it very difficult for members of his party, the Conservative Party, particularly legislators, lawmakers in Parliament, to deal with that criticism from their constituents. There were floods of emails to inboxes, thousands of calls. And anytime you spoke to anyone on the street and asked them about it, they said that they were furious. Yeah. Well, I just to to uh, put a fine point on that, I want to read a paragraph from your story because it's really great. I mean, it really sort of highlights the cultural distinctions between the United Kingdom and our relatively uncouth juvenile culture. The United Kingdom enjoys no single written constitution, but has instead collated centuries of legislation in leather-bound books alongside entire invisible libraries of unwritten, sometimes unspoken rules that govern personal politesse. Over the past two years, those twin universes of laws enacted by parliament and rules enforced by grandmother have collided with the advent of government-mandated social distancing measures. So yeah, it was the outraged grandmother's who have, you know, taught their children what to do and what not to do, and the seriousness with which uh, Britons uh, take that, uh, that's really sort of, at least that's the inflection point for uh, the end of uh, Boris Johnson's career. There's the, there's the comical side, which is the grandmother who was sat outside her front door talking to her neighbor, drinking a cup of tea, being told by the policeman to go back inside. And then there's the very serious side of the grandmother dying alone in a hospital because relatives weren't allowed to visit her because of restrictions. And and 
either side of that spectrum provoked the outrage I'm talking about. And it was essentially indefensible for Boris Johnson that people close to him, including himself, were involved in illegal social gatherings during that time. And don't forget, you know, he was he was provided with a criminal penalty by the police at the end of a, a long investigation. And not just his behavior during that period of those restrictions, but it was the subsequent efforts to deflect and obfuscate for months right. yeah. that people found incredibly frustrating and, and really dug away at his reputation as a man of any integrity. Right. The cover-up. So let's pan back here a minute. There's something kind of, I guess, ironic about him going down this way because at the outset of the of Trump's election in 2016, I remember that election night. The expression was American Brexit. And so there, and the kind of behaviors of Trump and Boris Johnson were often compared. And there was this idea of the populist uprising and all the things we know about and these big shifts in both of our countries. But here is where they part ways, really, because uh, you know, the populist right in our country really f- define themselves by flouting these rules, right? By saying we're not going to even heed them. And in fact, we're against vaccines. <laughs> um, one thing I, I, I'm curious about is, is there a sense of, uh, you know, our long national nightmare is over there in the way that it was when Trump exited the building? I, I wouldn't say it's quite as clear cut as it seems to be for a large portion of Americans at the end of that period in January last year. But certainly the divisions around things like Brexit have faded into the background a lot. And I think the pandemic is significantly responsible for that. And so it became not really a tribal argument about policy, which was what very often Brexit felt like when you spent time, particularly in Westminster, but more a question of character. And there were those within conservative ranks, supporters of Boris Johnson, who regardless of how he behaved and what he said and what he did, would support him. But even they, over the last couple of days, have found it very difficult to keep a straight face um, when defending his behavior. So I want to pivot for a minute into the latest article you have in Vanity Fair, which is um, tangentially related, which is uh, a look at the um, Russian oligarchs in the United Kingdom, how they sort of became entrenched and uh, allied themselves with establishment figures, many in the conservative party, uh, we find out. One thing I, I noticed right away is that you talk a little bit about this golden visa program. That is sort of the door through which uh, a lot of Russian, you know, oligarchs, Russian money and, uh, you know, made their way in and bought real estate and became very entrenched in the upper echelons of British society. What is that? Can you tell me what it is? Yeah, I mean, you know, every country has their own immigration policies. And at a certain period, initially way back in the 1990s, the British government at the time, a conservative government, decided they should introduce an immigration status that would incentivize, encourage wealthy individuals to invest in Britain and in return get some kind of visa status that would allow them to to maintain a residence in the UK. For years, it was a politically controversial topic 
those that perhaps had access to British services, had access to British real estate, perhaps didn't pay a huge amount of British tax. And it got more consistently codified in more recent years. And certainly since 2008 or so, many, many, many hundreds, if not thousands of wealthy Russian individuals took advantage of this opportunity. It essentially required them to invest and it's difficult with the exchange rates because they've altered over time, but a couple of million dollars is a, is, a, is a vague ballpark that makes sense. In British companies, British bonds, British assets, British bank accounts, and that would qualify them to get this residency. And many of them converted that residency over time into citizenship, just as any other immigrant on a visa is able to do with sufficient qualifications. And it's that program that has allowed a lot of these very wealthy Russian individuals to make strong connections with the establishment here. And it's that program that, you know, in the early days of uh, 2022, around the time that Russia was invading Ukraine, the government suddenly decided, you know what, we're going to cancel this. Yeah. Because they'd face so much criticism. Right. And, and consequently, all the people who have benefited <laughs> from their largesse are suddenly implicated in this huge shift. And um, what's that been like? I mean, is it, it's like uh, part of the whole strategy has been to shame these people and to publicly humiliate them and, and drive them from polite society. And, and yet, as we dig further into it, we find that, oh, the tentacles reach pretty far right into parliament. Yeah, certainly you had a couple dozen very high profile Russian businessmen, we, we call them oligarchs, typically, who do have very clear patent ties to the Putin government in Moscow. But you do have hundreds of other wealthy Russian individuals who may have been tarred with that same brush. And then you have another subset who perhaps aren't the most high profile of the oligarchs, but certainly have a, a significant amount of resources at their disposal. And some of them, from quite early on, following their arrival in the UK, seem to have been drawn to donating to the Conservative Party, which don't forget has essentially been in power here since 2010. They may have just enjoyed socialising with Conservative politicians at fundraisers. They may have felt that the Conservative political philosophy was one that dovetailed with their own. And there are those who say, particularly in the opposition parties, that it was a way of trying to buy influence. And when you start looking through the amounts of money involved and the backgrounds of some of these individuals, you as a reasonable person would start to raise questions about what those relationships were. And certainly that's what we tried to do with this feature was try and explore what those relationships were, whether they had any further significance, whether they've had any impact on policy. And there are certainly times where you come up thinking, well, that is a lot of money and that is a very close relationship and politicians from the Conservative Party in particular have gone out to bat on behalf of these individuals publicly on more than one occasion. Yeah. Well, and one of the sort of leading critics and gadflies looking at all of this is a guy named Chris Bryant, who you talk about in your article. And um, to bring Boris Johnson back into it, he uh, I'm just going to read a paragraph from here just to... Um, he, I think it's it's Bryant recalling this, how Johnson, as foreign minister, badly fumbled his first meeting with Putin's jowly top diplomat, Sergei uh, Lavrov, as he sought to normalize relations with Moscow. The prime minister has, quote, played Neville Chamberlain 
on Russia since 2014, Bryant says, in reference to the British leader who pursued a policy of appeasement with Hitler in the 19, uh, late 1930s. So how much has Boris Johnson been tagged with this, you know, and how, how credible is that? So certainly in the last few months since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Johnson has sought very obviously, very publicly and, and very apparently to behave like a wartime leader. And he's taken a leading role in providing military and financial support to the Ukraine. Many of his critics say that was because he realized that objectively he had been compared to some of the colleagues in his own party and certainly the opposition parties soft on Russia, as it were, had been slightly dovish. And, and that was part of a policy that he certainly pursued around normalization with President Putin. And so the comparison to Chamberlain for a man like Johnson, who's written biographies of Churchill, who, of course, took over from Neville Chamberlain and became a very successful wartime leader for Britain, will have been very galling. And in fact, one of the ironies of what's going on right at the moment is that one of the few leaders that Boris Johnson is hoping to have served longer in office than is Neville Chamberlain. But he certainly won't be in office nearly as long as his hero, uh, Winston Churchill. So, you know, it, it has been a persistent criticism of him when he was foreign minister. And a lot of people, particularly opposition members, have criticized him over the last few months around his backstory when it comes to Russia. Right. And how much do you get the sense that this is going to be an ongoing story? Because one thing I do know about the oligarchs and the way that they have operated is their money is opaque. And it, it only kind of comes out after lots of investigations and, and people trying to trace money because part of being an oligarch is not being traceable, right? To oh, make the connection to the Kremlin opaque and to hide the money from taxation and so forth. Yeah, what's been so fascinating, you know, for many years, there have been some fantastic investigative journalists and transparency organizations involved in trying to root out this information. We've had a, a number of very high profile document leaks, the Panama Papers, the Pandora Papers, many others that have shone a light on how some of these individuals do try and mask transactions, hide their money, invest in assets, launder, launder their finances. And what's been really interesting to me, at least as a Brit, looking at this closely the last few months is how when governments choose to actually start investigating, because they have the kind of subpoena power that you and I don't have, they can get information either out of banks or out of foreign governments around assets and shell companies that it's very hard for journalists like myself to get. And so it's been really interesting to see quite how much they've been able to seize when it comes to the assets belonging to some of these Russian individuals in the last four or five months yeah. that they could have looked into previously and seemingly chose not to do. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, because of the inconvenience that might uh, uh, lead to. Again, it's hard to know exactly. Is the implication. Yeah, I, yeah. I guess I guess that's <laughs> only the implication that I've, I've drawn uh, very often during the research on this piece. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, Villain Marks, thank you so much for coming on Inside the Hive and uh, giving us a sort of report from the front lines of what's going on in in Britain and um, what a historic moment this is. A historic year, really, all the way around for both of our countries. And uh, we, we stand poised on the axis of history here in so many ways. Um, so we hope to have you back another time. Appreciate it, Joe. Thank you so much. 
that is our podcast this week. I'd like to thank Jeff Charlotte, contributing editor to Vanity Fair, and Willem Marks, another contributor to the magazine. And thank you to our advertisers. Please support them the way they support this program. If you like what you're hearing, you like these conversations, hit subscribe. Come back next week and the week after. We've got a lot more coming your way. Emily Jane Fox, she'll be back next week. Take care. See you next week. Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterize the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices, and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th.